this lecture is going to continue the discussion of interest groups in the electoral arena by looking at one specific interaction of interest groups with uh, elections, and that is campaign finance, donations. Uh, I mentioned in the last lecture that there are three things that interest groups can provide in terms of campaign support, endorsements, activist energy, and donations, and uh, the, uh, there's, a, there's, there's not a lot more to be said about endorsements. Uh, there's not a lot more to be said about activist energy than I added uh, last time. There is some uh, detail to be discussed about donations. Now, the reading for this week, particularly chapter 10, is very detailed and covers uh, the uh, campaign finance universe much more in a much more detail than I'll be able to do or that I'm going to want to do here. What I want to do is give you kind of just an overview on the campaign finance landscape and to discuss the impact that different kinds of money in the electoral system have. Um, there are basically four different kinds of money and they come in two different categories. Uh, there are traditional methods of financing uh, campaigns and then there are post-Citizens United methods. Uh, Citizens United is a very uh, important uh, pr uh, Supreme Court precedent handed down in 2010 that has had a major impact on the landscape of interest group participation in the electoral uh, process, particularly when it comes to uh, donations, but also when it comes to impact of money on the outcomes of elections. So uh, let me start with traditional methods. Uh, traditional methods uh, are the kind of donations that foster long-term ties between interest groups and office holders, um, and that also kind of link up interest groups and parties, because interest groups tend to have interests that will align with one or more, one, not one or more, with one of the two major parties. Um, they may align with actually uh, minor parties as well, but typically it's the major parties that interest groups are interested in forging relationships with. And parties themselves are interested in relationships with interest groups because what a political party is, is it's a coalition of interest groups. You're not a successful political party, you're not a major, one of the two major political parties unless you can establish and maintain ongoing relationships with a variety of interest groups that form your electoral coalition. You don't win elections in the United States in our district-based winner-take-all system without having a broad-based coalition that's going to get you the most votes, more votes than the other major parties. So interest groups uh, want uh, parties to win, the party, the party that best aligns with their views to win. Um, they also want office holders within that particular party who are uh, aligned with their interests as well as, as I mentioned last time, strongly supportive of th their policies and likely to actually enact them. Um, the uh, donation of money through traditional methods is a way that interest groups foster relationships with parties and with office holders. Um, hard money is uh, the category of money which is direct campaign donations. It's where an interest group or an individual um, or a political action committee makes a direct monetary donation to the campaign fund of the candidate. They write a check to, let's say I'm running for Congress, Jack Miller for Congress. The committee to elect Jack Miller to Congress gets that check, goes into the campaign fund. The campaign can then use that money in any way that they want. So when you give a direct donation, it's for direct support, and that money is now out of your control. That money is used by the campaign in whatever way they see fit. Um, there's also soft money, which uh, is used for party building and issue advocacy. 
um, which is allowed to be, there are, there are uh, less uh, strict limits on that. There are strict limits on hard money. There are less strict limits. Um, and uh, the soft money, it's called soft money because it doesn't directly go into the control of a campaign. It's not lost by uh, the donor, um, but it also only softly lands on a campaign. Uh, in traditional campaign finance uh, law, soft money cannot be spent directly endorsing a particular candidate. Uh, soft money is spent on party building activities, such as uh, generating uh, um, voter registration drives, generating party, uh, party registrations, getting, uh, paying for offices, paying for uh, events. Uh, party building is a really important part of supporting candidates because candidates can't just buy their way to victory. They also need endorsements and activist energy. A campaign is built around uh, not just spending money on advertisements, but on making sure that you have people doing the um, grassroots work that's going to get your voters to the polls so that you get more votes. So soft money is uh, intended to create better conditions for allowing campaigns to succeed. Um, party building issue advocacy. If you're, if, you're, if you're running ads about the need for better schools, right? That we have, uh, we have an educational crisis in our community, we need better schools. <clears throat> a candidate, <coughs> excuse me, who supports increased school funding, better programs, whatever it is uh, that will build better schools uh, at that particular time in that particular community, uh, issue advocacy ads that get voters aware of the fact that education is an important issue to be paying attention to are gonna soften up the ground for the campaign to then give specific ads saying our candidate is the candidate of education. So uh, uh, issue advocacy is a way of supporting candidates of a certain type without actually mentioning their name specifically. Um, and in the traditional landscape of campaign finance, the, the pre-Citizens United world, in order to be able to spend a lot of money supporting candidates, because hard money is strictly limited, in order to spend a lot of money, you had to support those candidates indirectly. Um, now, uh, the difference between hard and soft money is that hard money just directly gives the campaign a boost, and soft money creates a better environment for the campaign. Uh, issue advocacy ads, uh, as I just indicated, uh, do that by uh, creating a voter awareness and a, a sort of opportunity for them candidates to say, you know, you think education is important because these people over here did the work and making you aware of that, and I'm the education person. Uh, so it's kind of a two-stage process. Uh, party building also creates a better ground game for candidates. It creates the ability for candidates to cash in on activist energy in terms of getting more votes. So basically what soft money is doing is it's helping to create a more beneficial electoral landscape for specific campaigns, for specific candidates. Now, since both sides are doing this, you need to uh, do as much as you can to create a more beneficial electoral landscape, uh, especially if um, the issues that you as an interest group care about are kind of in the back of the consciousness of the electorate at that particular time. Spending money on issue advocacy and spending money on uh, grassroots uh, awareness, activities, door knocking and flyers and newsletters is going to bring your issue closer to the front of the mind of voters. Um, so they're gonna be much more likely to think about the candidates who represent 
those issues very strongly, right? Um, so if, you know, if for example, you are somebody who uh, is, your interest group is really concerned about increasing educational funding, uh, but right now is a homeless crisis and a healthcare crisis in your community, you're gonna have a harder time getting candidates who are the education candidates to win, and you're also gonna get a harder time having the, the candidates who support educational uh, reform to care about that once they get into office as a top priority. So soft money is really uh, good at uh, doing, is useful for creating a beneficial electoral landscape, and it, it not only does it help you get uh, more favorable candidates elected, um, it also helps make those candidates more likely to pay attention to the issue that you care about. Because as I said last time, and this is, uh, I'll repeat this probably many times in this class, it's really important to be able to uh, not just get people who support your issue, but to get them to put it close to the top of their agenda and to get them to be energetic and active on behalf of your uh, cause. Um, hard money, actually, uh, what it does is it gets you victories and it really, what it does is it helps to buy you access and create that uh, dependency, the incumbent dependency that I talked about in the last lecture. So hard money is what gets you, not just favorable office holders, both hard and soft money do that, but hard money gives you the ability to then say, hey, we supported you with this X number of thousands of dollars, um, and we've done this cycle after cycle, and you can count on our checks, so uh, you should take our calls and you should listen to us, and when, we prod you to push our uh, policy to the top of the agenda, you better respond. Um, now, in the post-Citizens United world, both hard money and soft money still exist, and they are not unimportant, but they are less important uh, for a couple reasons. One, hard money is less important because there are still strict limits on it, and there is only so much money that individuals and interest groups and wealthy people can uh, give to directly to candidates. Um, when that was the only form of providing financial support, it was a level playing field where everybody was, uh, was uh, operating within the same strict limits. Um, now with Citizens United, uh, the uh, groups can spend money outside of the campaign. So outside money is what Citizens United makes possible. Um, outside money, however, has one very important restriction, and that is that it can't be coordinated with the campaign. It can't be sneaky hard money. You can't say, okay, we're gonna spend all this money outside of these strict uh, donation limits to support your campaign, um, but tell us what to say, right? Uh, the, there's unlimited advocacy of a candidate. Now, this largely makes issue advocacy as a practice relatively unimportant because uh, it, the reason why you would uh, spend soft money and do issue advocacy was because you wanted certain candidates to win, but you couldn't mention their names. That was the legal restrictions. You couldn't say, I'm for Jack Miller, the education candidate. You can only say, education's really important, and then that would soften up the ground for Jack Miller's campaign to come in and say, I'm the education candidate. Now you can actually just say, with unlimited money, but not coordinated with the campaign, Jack Miller is the education candidate, vote for him. Um, one of the things that this distinction between uh, outside money and official campaign money creates is that the messaging that is done by outside groups is different than, potentially different than the messaging that is done by the candidates themselves. And what is really interesting about outside money is because there are no limits on it, and there are still limits on, on hard money donations, 
outside groups can and almost always now do outspend the candidates themselves on candidate endorsement advertising. Um, what this enables is this enables outside groups to actually define candidates more strongly than candidates can define themselves, right? Uh, and why this is important is because candidates don't necessarily want to be boxed up as like the champion of education, right? Um, if I have four or five issues that are important to me and what really matters to me is the environment, but uh, groups that are uh, interested in educational reform spend a lot of money getting me elected and they have defined me as the education candidate, then when I get elected, the voters who saw that and responded to that messaging are going to expect education reform from me. And so I may not really want to, to move first on educational reform. I may really want to address the climate crisis first. That's my top priority issue. But because my support is based on my educational stance, my, my stance on educational policy, that's going to pressure me into becoming more of the educational reform candidate than I might otherwise want uh, to be. Um, and uh, that's an interesting dynamic because what that does is that gives outside groups more leverage than they ever had before in advancing their agenda. Um, it also is, uh, gives outside groups not just an, uh, the incentive to, but, or excuse me, the ability to, but the incentive to uh, really look for alternative champions of their policy if their previous champion doesn't come through. Um, because what it allows you to do is to say, hey, look, we got you elected with all this money. We, 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 we outspent your own campaign 10 to 1, and you're not doing what we wanted you to do. We have a different education reform champion who we're going to put our money behind them, right? And even though they're in your same party, we're going to promote them in a primary challenge. <clears throat> and we're going to outspend your campaign 10 to 1 in the primary, and we're going to get our new person elected. So that kind of leverage uh, was, is, was available before because you could say, well, we donated, you know, our, our supporters and our organization donated tens of thousands of dollars to your campaign, and we're going to pull that if you don't support our policy. But now it actually gives interest groups uh, the ability to say, we're not just going to pull our financial support from you. We're going to actually throw huge financial support in favor of somebody else. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna outgun you, so you better play ball with our policy. Right? We like that you support education reform, uh, but we want that to be more than just lip service. We need serious action. So outside money gives these outside groups more leverage than the traditional relationship. And there's a, it shortens the time frame. Um, <clears throat> you're investing lots and lots of money in an election. You're going to expect a faster return on that investment. As I said last time, uh, donations tend to be, uh, in the traditional model, tend to be long-term investments in fostering that incumbent dependency and then generating greater uh, continued access to office holders so that they will hear your priorities, your ideas, and uh, you will get to have play golf with them and have lunch with them more frequently than other groups, and so they'll tend to hear your voices more often. Outside money now enables larger amounts and the payoff in investment, it's, it's a shorter term investment. Uh, now, uh, I've broken down this group into two categories, outside money and dark money, and they're not really two different categories. Hard money and soft money are two different categories. 
all post isn't United money that's not hard money uh, is uh, outside money. It's dark money, much of it's dark money, not all of it. Some, some groups actually, depending on how they go about their politicking activity and the reason does a good job of describing this, um, have to reveal uh, their expenditures and their donors. But there's the potential and possibility for uh, groups to spend a ton of money and not tell anybody where that money came from. There's, uh, Citizens United makes it possible for there to be zero transparency in large amounts of spending uh, on campaigns. And there, there are, there's actually good constitutional reasons uh, for this kind of uh, lack of transparency that date back to the civil rights era when um, civil rights groups sought protections from revealing their, uh, their, their member list and their donor list because they were worried about retaliation. Those same precedents that came from the civil rights era were applied to outside money by the Supreme Court in the Citizens United ruling. So for good or ill, there's no transparency. What this enables is this enables groups to support candidates that might otherwise be problematic for them from a public relations standpoint, right? You want, you're an oil company and you want candidates who are going to deregulate uh, oil drilling and who are going to provide subsidies and do all the stuff that big oil wants. But as an oil company, you have an image to maintain and you don't want to look totally craven and you don't want to look like a, like a fat cat that's just buying votes in the legislature. So you're going to have trouble you know, over-investing in candidates who are going to support your policies. It's going to look like corruption and look like bribery, um, and that's bad PR. Uh, what the lack of transparency enables, it, is, it enables corporations, unions, organizations, wealthy individuals, it enables them to actually spend lots of money on outcomes that don't, uh, that, that might be bad for them from a public relations point of view, but that actually benefit them from a policy point of view. Now, one of the things that the outside money enables, I, I pointed out how it sort of shifts from long-term investments to short-term uh, investments. Um, it, it shakes up the traditional relationships and it actually makes parties less important and makes outside groups more important to the electoral process. It also shakes up that traditional long-term fostering that dependency relationship. Um, it tends to benefit wealthy individuals at the expense of interest groups because interest groups can't really spend these vast sums of money. Um, they have to be more cautious in their investments, whereas wealthy individuals can say, hey, I just, I want these people to win because these people are going to uh, vote for the things that I want, my pet projects, whatever it happens to be. Tax cuts, abortion laws, uh, you know, uh, removing restrictions on drilling, whatever it happens to be. Uh, wealthy individuals are going to like invest and they're going to invest in a way that again is more short term. We want winners, this crop of winners, and we want them to enact our policies very quickly. Um, what this tends to do, and, and, and it's, uh, it has shaken up politics in the last decade in a pretty significant way, is this benefits outsiders and ideological insurgents and extreme uh, candidates with extreme positions uh, much more than it benefits traditional moderate candidates. Because again, what outside groups are looking for is a quick turnaround on their investment. I'm gonna, my group is gonna make a $10 million investment in your Senate campaign, and we need you within your first term in the Senate to do these things. And so that's gonna tend to benefit people who are more outside the traditional party structure where there's a time-serving, long-term uh, relationship building kind of uh, uh, dynamic that goes into that kind of politicking. It's gonna favor outside groups. Um, also, the leverage of your short-term investment is only possible when you can finance a, a primary challenger. 
um, or I shouldn't say it's only uh, a leverageable event, but it, it, that's one of the primary ways of leveraging your investment in a candidate is to, is to say, hey, next time around, we're gonna actually support with our uh, vast uh, um, spending that you can't match because you have all these strict limits on hard money donations, uh, that we're going to uh, support this outsider. So primary challenges are an important tool in the uh, arsenal of these sh essentially short-term uh, investors. Uh, and what that does is that means that there are going to be more party outsiders who are going to appear, who are going to get, uh, who are going to win primaries, who are going to get elected, um, and this actually shakes up the traditional, not only the traditional relationships between uh, voters and uh, uh, incumbents, it, it actually makes it harder for party leaders to maintain a kind of cogent party coalition within the legislature. It makes it way more difficult, and we've actually seen this particularly with the, De with the Republican Party, but with the Democratic Party as well um, in the last 10 years, that these insurgents who are coming from outside the traditional party structure and essentially are being short-term invested into these elected uh, positions, that they don't play ball with party leaders the same way and they have disrupted the, the legislative process in a way that still party leaders haven't necessarily adjusted to. Uh, so the shifting from these traditional uh, dual hard money, soft money, uh, directly investing in campaigns, investing in the electoral environment that soft money is, uh, that has been su supplemented by there's still hard money being donated and there's still to a certain extent party building activities and issue advocacy ads going on so soft money has not completely disappeared. But they've been supplemented and outgunned by outside money, much of which, not all of which, but much of which is dark money. And that has shifted the traditional way in which uh, 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 campaign financing works to the detriment of interest groups generating and maintaining these long-term, be mutually beneficial relationships with office holders. So it has, uh, Citizens United has disrupted the interest group uh, uh, environment in a relatively uh, important way.